Hi, I'm Kevin Harrington, an original shark in the hit TV show, Shark Tank. I'm also the inventor of the infomercial and an ass on TV. Dove is a special uh, entrepreneur. Uh, he does amazing podcasts, but he's also a speaker and a consultant. Hi, I'm Sal Sylvester. I'm the author of Unite, the four mindset shifts for senior leaders and founder of Coach Metrics. He's a thought leader in the field, fantastic author. He's got an amazing radio show. Hello there, my name is Brett Trapp. I'm a creative consultant living in Atlanta, Georgia. Also the creator of Blue Babies Pink. Uh, this guy has written books, has a successful podcast, uh, and is absolutely changing the game when it comes to leadership and leadership development. Hey guys, Cameron Brown here, founder of The Thriving Collective. I travel the world helping people make a greater impact. Dolph is uh, just an outstanding character, uh, high quality guy, authentic guy, uh, master on leadership. My name is Chris Stoikos, founder of thebeardclub.com. And I'd just like to say that Dove has a very, very unique approach to working with businesses. Hey, this is Derry Apjohn, as well as Davis, aka The Strategy Man. And if I'm going to describe Dove in three words, it's going to be courageous, deep, and conscious. And that's exactly what you need for leadership right now. Hey guys, this is Devon Harris, original member of the Jamaican Bobsled team, three-time Olympian, author, speaker, philanthropist, he is one of the most amazing guys you'll ever meet, an amazing interviewer, but at the same time, an amazing speaker. Hi, I'm Nate Regeer, CEO and co-founding partner of Next Element Consulting, a global leadership training company specializing in conflict communication. You know, the more I get to know Dov Barron, the more I admire his authenticity, his genuine commitment to something that I share deep in my heart, which is this notion of authentic communication. I'm Jared Nichols. I'm a futurist, executive advisor, host of the NSBA podcast, The Road Ahead, and also president of the Jared Nichols Group. Dov is uh, an outstanding thought leader when it comes to leadership and the traits and the qualities of leadership that are going to be necessary to succeed in the 21st century. Hey everybody, Coach Brew here, best-selling author of Stadium Status, taking your business to the big time. If I had to describe Dov in three words, it would be expertise, genuine, and heart-centered leader. I'm John Berga, the president of Flourishing Leadership Institute, where we enable communities and organizations. He has a finger on the pulse of what the future is asking for from leaders. Hey, this is Jordan Harbinger of the Art of Charm podcast. Dov Barron is a great host with insightful perspective. He understands what makes people tick, and he can get to the heart of the matter in an entertaining and educational and informational way. Hi, I'm Joshua Miller, and I am the author of the new book, I Call Bullshit, Live Your Life, Not Somebody Else's. Dov Barron, to me, when you talk about authentic leadership and cutting through the bullshit, there's nobody I would trust to go to than Dov Barron. Hello there, I'm Mike Glauser. I've been studying entrepreneurial leadership for more than 20 years. He really knows how to teach authentic leadership and that's one of the most important things today in leading organizations. Hi there, my name is Rick Barker. I am the founder of the Music Industry Blueprint. I help people navigate the music business. He had made me aware of some things that were quite visible, but were still hidden. I'm Tom Bilyeu, co-founder of Quest Nutrition and Impact Theory. Dov is absolutely amazing. I really enjoyed my time. A, he knows the guests before they come on, which is absolutely critical. But B, this guy, most importantly, has intensity, well-thought-out ideas, often counterintuitive, which 
is what makes him great. Hi, I'm Tim Sanders, author of the book Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends. His perspective is laser sharp about the things that matter. Welcome. Have you ever been curious about this thing called reality? Is what we call reality truly real? Are we living in some kind of matrix or maybe a collective responsive ether through which each of us is creating our own reality? Well, if you've ever been curious about anything even close to those kinds of things, you're going to love this episode, so stay tuned. My name is Dove Barron and I'm your host. How you can find out more about me and about hiring me, Dove Barron, as your speaker or strategist, for your organization or for yourself at fullmontyleadership.com forward slash consulting or or fullmontyleadership.com forward slash speaking. My guest on this episode is someone I've been wanting to interview for actually many years. Of course, he doesn't know that, but it's true. He's someone I enormously respect and admire. Nassim, Nassim Haramayan. Harmain. Try again. Wow. Nassim Harmain. He founded Taurus Tech in 2015. He has spent the last 30 years researching and discovering connections in physics, mathematics, geometry, cosmology, quantum physics, biology, chemistry, as well as anthropology and ancient civilizations. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and welcome the scene. <laughs> the crowd goes wild, young man. I see. This is some of the best introduction I've ever had. <laughs> welcome, mate. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you, you don't know, but I've been a huge fan of yours for years. I've actually been on the on the on the periphery looking at, at what it is you do um, uh-huh. because there's so many crossovers between you and I and what we do except that you are you know I, I am in kindergarten and you have uh, been teaching at university so you know not quite the same but interest levels definitely they're similar right so on because of the theme of this show I'm gonna start by asking you this question what is it that you, Nassim, are most curious about at this time? Um, At this time specifically, what I'm most curious about is the exact path to application and engineering of the theoretical uh, framework that I've developed over 30 years, yeah. So the application. Correct. so where are you looking for that application into this unified work that you've been doing? Well, you know, I I clearly from the work I've written on the equation I've written and the, the comprehension I've come to, uh, there must be and there is a path to extracting vast amount of energy and creating artificial gravitational effects or gravity control um, from the theory. So um, investigating and experimenting on the very specific way in which that can be accomplished for humanity's sake, for humanity's purposes, is very much what I'm interested in right now. So is that a form of propulsion 
Correct. Uh, you know, the equations clearly show that space-time is full of energy, significant amount, and that um, when this energy is in motion, when it is coherent, when it is co-moving in a region of space, it produces curvature. Um, and curvature of space-time, as we know, is gravitation. And mm. so this opens the door to gravitational control, which would free humanity from the surface of our planet. That's pretty amazing. So tell me this, because I think this is an important question, particularly for you, which is what is the most common misunderstanding of what you do? Because I, th I think that, you know, it's, it's easy to shove you in one box or another box. Mm -hmm. What would you say is the most common misunderstanding of what it is that you do? Uh, I would say that it's the assumption that what I do is very fringe. Um, and that comes just from, you know, not, you know, of course, a lot of people don't have a background in physics necessary no. or um, even physicists um, that are teaching at universities, you know, day in, day out, the same physics, you know, so on. And, um, that are not necessarily at the creative level of where physics is occurring, might think that the physics I'm writing is very fringe, um, very unusual, but actually it is very much in line with some of the most creative work that's being done by the top physicists on the planet that are doing, you know, the creative part of physics, not the teaching part. And, um, and so I think that's a very large mis misconception. Um, for instance, when I start talking about protons or subatomic particles acting or being like black holes and all this, they might start thinking that's really unusual. Even a physicist, certain physicists might think that. But in fact, if you listen to Sutskin or you know, Welchek or many other physicists that are considered the, the top guys that are working at that level, that is not an unusual thought at all. Yeah, it's you know? interesting that, the, you know, the misconception is that it's fringe, but, mm -hmm. you know, for me, the yeah. simplicity of it is, is that Heisenberg was fringe. Right. Initially, you know, Einstein was fringe initially, I mean, and I think it was uh, Niels Bohr, or maybe it, maybe it was Heisenberg, who said that um, in order for new ideas to be embraced, the old the old physicists have to die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so I think that a lot of things are fringe um, until there's that 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 sort of momentum, that that tipping point of like, oh yeah, well I always knew that. And I think that people are often like that with any new idea is like, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. And then, well, we always knew that. Well, why were you fighting me so hard? <laughs> kind of fascinating, right? And, and of course you didn't go, you didn't, you personally didn't go the traditional path. So your ideas, as I said, have been labeled by some as outrageous and radical by even by scientists. Um, maybe even scientists who are more on the edge to see you as on the outer edge, but you're not unfamiliar with quote rejection. L let's go back a little bit. Let's 
go back in time a little bit because one of the things that I said you and I have a lot in common, one of the areas that you and I have in common is that we were both severely dyslexic kids, right? And uh, the, the, so, so let's talk about that. What was that like, you know, being a kid with this wacky mind who, you know, because I had the same thing. I was this kid who was fast, like when all my mates were at home when I was a little kid watching cartoons, I was yeah. watching docu I was watching documentaries or studying with rabbis. You know, and they're like, "What are you doing? Are you coming out to play?" I'm like, "No, I'm watching this nature documentary. This kid's weird." So, but I had, like you, I had severe dyslexia. So tell us about that. Yeah, uh, it was well. Certainly, at the time that I was going to school, and now I'm aging myself a little bit. It was not well recognized, and um you know even though my father was you know in education um it it wasn't recognized by him neither um and so it was you know it, there was a lot of assumption that i was either dumb or slightly you know uh retarded or you know the, you know the, the, there was there was some issues with with True. me um and it placed me in a very isolated position um you know i had problems with my teachers i had problems with the other kids they thought i was weird um you know they since my father was the director of education uh department at university of montreal i was then placed in various uh school for children with difficulties uh i was put through many many iq tests and, and all this stuff to try to determine if i was you know somewhat deficient in some ways um so it made my childhood very difficult and yeah. uh, and and it was i was very isolated but there was one good thing about this is that i felt the most comfortable and the most at ease when i was in nature mm -hmm. and so i spent a lot of time in nature either skiing or climbing or you know sitting by myself in the backyard looking at trees and flowers and all this and my observation of nature, I think, was really one of the first steps in my discovery process. Um, I was fascinating, fascinated with nature and how it worked and why it worked so well and how it obtained such an amazing state of balance and relationship between everything. So that was really my first step in this in, in this grand adventure that uh, lasted the rest of my life. So uh, you know, as as that kid um, who's looking at the uh, organizational patterns of nature, um, and at the same time struggling at school, were you? Did you have any siblings? Were you a lonely kid? What, what was that like? Tell us. I just want to know a little more about that part of your world. Because yeah. I, I believe without a shadow of a doubt that we're all formed in our childhood and, and the lenses we see the world through are, are formed there. Right. Sure. Um, I, you know, my, my parents divorced when I was four. Um, so 
my mom worked uh, very hard every day to feed us and, and, and lodge us and everything. And so she wasn't at home. Um, so we were left by ourselves a lot. My sister uh, didn't get along with me at all. Um, she was my, an older sister. And, and when I came into the world, it kind of rocked her world and it didn't jive with her very well. So she wasn't very much interested in spending time with me. So yes, I was fairly lonely kid. I was, I was alone a lot of the time, um, left to my own on my own to like vouch for myself. And so I, uh, I spent a lot of time in contemplation and in uh, in kind of quarreling of uh, what is this reality? What am I experiencing? How did I get here? You know, what are these people all around me doing? And and how did this uh, world come to be? You know, that was really really interesting interesting for me to explore, and uh, and I really wanted as well to um to get a sense uh if if there was like a deeper spiritual meaning to life mm -hmm. you know like i i, I was yeah. trying to figure out like what is this thing called religion what is the you know what is spirituality and all this so you know consciousness all that stuff was really like a big you know quarry for me like trying to figure that, this all out and i thought i'm gonna figure it out and i never thought it would take that long <laughs> yeah like i said you and i have a lot in common around that because i was this weird kid exactly so I'm like this doesn't make sense uh one of my greatest fascinations was watching people who were the god and goddesses of my life meaning the all authoritarian parents or or whoever it might be uh, or relatives or friends of relatives and watching them do stupid shit over and over again and going, <laughs> I'm a kid and I can work out that my aunt is dating the same man with a new face. <laughs> what is that about? Like, why, uh, why is this person who I think is really intelligent doing something that I, as a nine-year-old, can work out is not smart? <laughs> not that I didn't repeat that pattern, because I did. Uh -huh. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I did a lot, but it, but it was like that was the original fascination with, for me, with psychology, and then you know the quantum uh, started way back with the rabbis and and looking at Kabbalah and well well what is the because my mom sent me to the rabbis because I would talk about beyond the veil, like mm -hmm. what is beyond the veil of reality? And my mom's like, who what? You know I'm an like you know like yeah I'm an outcast. I'm in northern England in a ghetto. You know, less than working class ghetto, and mm -hmm. and just don't talk like that. So you, mm -hmm. must, as I said, you must have been different in a lot of ways because you were you were born in Switzerland. You've got parents who are Italian and, and Persian. Mm -hmm. uh, then you moved to Quebec. You moved to to Eastern Canada when you were how old? Uh, four years old. Uh, no, I moved when I was three. And yeah. Okay, so you, you so you moved to Quebec. So now you you don't look like other kids. Uh, maybe some of the uh, some of the uh, French Canadians were a little more darker skinned, but you still look different. You're definitely different. Uh, right. 
you have to learn French or, you know, you got that becomes your primary language. Yeah. And then you don't fit in at school. You don't fit in because of the dyslexia. You don't fit in with your own family. Yeah. That feeling, and I, I really believe this in the same, I, I want to bring it to you. I think that that feeling I ever, in all the years I had as a psychologist, one of the things I found is a common theme in people who were extraordinary, who did extraordinary things, is every single one of them thought at some point, I'm a freaking alien. They <laughs> went at some point and went, I don't belong in this family. I'm a freaking alien. Like, uh, did some alien come into me and I just got in this body, right? Uh, it's like, exactly. I'm going to try and understand that. And that was the motivating force. Right, right, right. You? No yeah. doubt. Exactly. <laughs> like, like, how did I get here? And why is everybody around me so strange? Exactly. Uh, exactly. <laughs> So, so when, when you went on, so because your background, as I said, is not traditional. No. You didn't go through the traditional path of becoming a physicist and, you know, getting a, going to, to college and then getting a, a PhD and then going and becoming a, a, a professor. A, a, but you are a physicist. It's just not the traditional path. So right. talk to us about, about uh, especially when you had a father who was the head of education uh, uh, in Montreal, Talk to us about going another path and ending up in a place where you are at that same level. Right. Like, like, it was very strange um, because you see, um, so I, because I didn't fit, fit well in the educational system and I, I was really miserable, uh, as soon as I was legally allowed to leave, I did. Um, right. And so I was... A dropout, and I I uh, I went into the ski industry because um, I loved skiing. Uh, I, I had been skiing all my life, um, you know, since I was a child, and I love. You moved to Hawaii, right? <laughs> that was later on when I was. Uh, but Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just couldn't resist that one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but I was, you know, very intrigued with nature as well. And I loved being outside. So it was perfect. And so I, I got into the ski industry after floundering a little bit, you know, as a, as a young uh, teen, you know, as a young adult, a teenager. And um I, which was tough, actually, I found myself in the streets of Montreal in the winter, you know, kind of lonely and, and not sure what to do. Um, but I, I pulled out of that and I got into the ski industry and um, I rose through the ranks of the ski industry to the very high spheres of the level of coaching and, 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 and teaching in, in skiing in Canada, which is a very uh, strong skiing country. So it was very, um, it, it took me a long time, you know, it, it was a very long path and arduous and it, it taught me very important lesson. One of them, um, the lessons that you find if you're gonna excel at any sport, which is self-discipline, you know, training, self-discipline being, you know, one focus and, and going at it. And, and I, and it was not, and once again, I didn't fit in, you know, I was, I was a, a Persian name, dark skin, 
you know, skier, right? Which like, okay, that's yeah, kind oxymoron of, right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, it was tough. I encountered a lot of resistance. Um, and I, but I got there and as I got to the upper ranks, when I got, you know, the level four coach, uh, the level uh, four skin structure batch and the, the level three coach, and I was rated one of the 20 top, you know, uh, instructor in Canada and all this, like I was up there, I realized, okay, but this is not answering my questions. This is not telling me what, what is this and how this works and all this. And I, all the way through this evolution in the skin industry, I kept on as a hobby, you know, working on, you know, trying to understand the physics, trying to understand the geometry, trying to understand, you know, the spirituality, consciousness, all of this. I was, that was still very much present. And I, um, you know, a few things happen uh, as they do. Um, you know, I, I, I had an, uh, head to head impact with a snowmobile, uh, that, you know, sent me into a hospital. I had, uh, you know, a few car accidents anyway. And eventually, uh, I realized, okay, m my path must go to my passion now. And, and so I relinquished what I was doing in the ski industry sold all my equipment, sold my skis and everything, moved into a van. And I, I, I spent five years of my life studying physics, almost 15 to 20 hours a day, every day, um, continuously, nonstop. Um, and I, I really, really got into like trying to understand reality, what it was made of, how it got there and how consciousness could emerge from it. And I found remarkable things. And I, I, I thought of going to a university and getting a PhD and, you know, going that route. But it, for me at the time, it was clear that if I did that, it would taint me. It would... It would, it would force me to accept concepts that I didn't necessarily think was, uh, was true or that I might disagree with and so on. And, and it would, it would kind of put me in a box. It would pigeon-toe me. And I, I didn't want that to happen. So I did it independently. Uh, because I was doing it for my own satisfaction. I was not doing it for anybody else. I, I just wanted to know. I didn't care if I got a PhD out of it. I didn't care if people believed me or not believe me. I just wanted to know. It was an amazing time of exploration. And after five years, I had found something what I, that I thought was profound. Um, and I, I had found some um, of the truth that are currently in our physics. But, but in between, I had found where the path in physics might have diverged, where there might have been an error that was made, uh, yeah. two errors that led us down a path that I believe leads to a dead end. And to, just to repair these errors, all of a sudden, physics opened to a whole new level of understanding. And I didn't have all the equations at the time when I got out of the van, but I knew enough of the math and enough of the physics and I could see the path 
that I, I knew that if I kept on exploring it, I would get there. And I got the support of other physicists here and there to teach me enough of the physics and so on. And eventually, after, you know, 20 some years, um, the equations just emerged and they're so beautiful. And, and I actually I just saw a whole bunch of new ones of extensions of what I've written in the last two weeks. It literally made me cry. I mean, it, um, you know, it's coming out so beautiful, so precise, and it's telling us something so profound about our universe. I, I feel like there's something very valuable there. So is is that the new paper that you've just recently released about, uh, I think it was titled uh, The Electron and Holographic Mass Solution, is that the one? Um, yeah, so this, that is a very important paper. It was, uh, it was published at Physics SA, which I'm really happy um, for this publication. It's a very good journal, peer-reviewed journal, and, and it took us a while, it took us a year, but we got there. And um, we, uh, so I'm really happy about this and the paper just before we published it, like two months prior as well, which is the vacuum catastrophe paper where we uh, show that this holographic mass solution solves for the, for the universal size perfectly without the need for dark matter and dark energy and for the electron. And so now we've solved for the proton, the electron, and the universe. And what I solved in the last two weeks, as nobody knows about this, is that I, I, finally, I finally was able, with the help of an excellent um, physicist collaborator in France, um, um, uh, we were able to solve for all the stuff in between. So like clusters, galactic structures, stars, planets, and so on. So that, you know, now the equation is precisely describing everything we see in our reality from the universal size to the atomic size, and as well solving for the table of elements that we just finished uh, a few days ago. And so it's like, and it's beautiful, meaning it's precise. It doesn't have a whole bunch of weird parameters that we're throwing in. You know, it's beautiful, it's precise, it's clean, and uh, it's profound. So before we go too deep into, into uh, off, off, uh, into into the weird and wonderful. Let, <laughs> let's just talk about how this might relate to somebody who is watching this, listening to us, and go, you know, who has a profound interest, probably the way you and I did many many years ago, but doesn't understand all the the nuances of it yet, and sort of putting it at a lay level, because both you and I are, uh, are at our base lay people. Who mm -hmm. have just been fascinated? So how does how does this relate to that person? How you know they go? This is really cool, really neat, but does it change anything? Does it change, or, or how does it change my reality? Right. Well, you know, 
on the more philosophical side, it changed your reality when you understand it. Eventually, it will change your reality on the technological side. But right. um, uh, on the more philosophical side, the, the equation basically works uh, because it is, um, it is considering that the field of space what Einstein called space-time mm -hmm. is not um, empty, but full of energy. Yes. So, so let's me, let me explain. Like currently the space between you and the windows behind you and, and all the objects in your room, your mic and everything, we know is not empty. It's full, yep. you know, although we have a tendency of thinking of, of, of the space as empty, we know it's not empty, right? There's electromagnetic waves in there. There's like radio waves, there's microwaves, there's background radiation from the galaxy. There's all kinds of stuff in the space, mm -hmm. all electromagnetic fluctuation. Now, the theory shows that there's electromagnetic fluctuations that are happening at, at scales that are so far from our scale that we don't know it's there. Well, it came out in the math of quantum field theory almost a hundred years ago, but, but we didn't understand it. It was not interpreted correctly, meaning they discovered that the space at the quantum scale, which, you know, all the atoms are made out of 99.999999% space. So sure. all of our reality first of all, is mostly space. Mm -hmm. What we don't call space is little oscillations, electrostatic oscillation that we bump against. We call it yeah. matter, right? Yeah. Well, that space is actually full of fluctuation that are occurring what we call the Planck scale. It's occurring at this scale billions of times smaller than an atom. And so, and, and when we calculate the energy that's there in the space, in the electromagnetic field, it's almost infinite. It's insanely huge. It's 10 to the 93 grams per centimeter cube. It's more than the mass of the universe in the centimeter cube of space. That's how much energy is there. And now we know it's there. It's been measured in laboratory and so on. And so it, it's remarkable imagine so imagine what it means to you like that you realize wow i'm actually swimming it's like we were fish in the ocean but we didn't know the ocean was there yeah right yeah. so now we realize wow there's an ocean like there's a field all around me and inside of me because i'm made out of mostly space right because i'm made out of atoms so that like there's a there's a field of information there's a field of energy everywhere all around me inside me everywhere that permeates everything and the equation says everything you see is actually just an organization of that field so right. there's, there's not matter and space there's just space defining matter making matter yes. right so so that that's a wonderful way to describe it. So now let's 
take it to the personal level because I think this is where the perception, and I want to underline that word, the perception is of woo-woo because um, I wrote about this, I wrote a thesis on this, uh, um, and you might think I'm completely wrong and I'm actually wide open to that. Um, please, if you, if you feel like you need to breach my bias, please do that. Um, but the, the question becomes around, okay, if we are swimming in this ocean of energy and we don't even know we're in it, um, as you said, the fish doesn't know how to describe water. There's a wonderful, wonderful, uh, story of an old fish swimming through a lake and two young fish swim up to him. And as he gets closer to him, he goes, Hey lads, how's the water? And the two young fish carry on swimming. And then finally, one of the fish looks at the other and goes, what the hell is water? Right? And it's just a great example of we don't know it because we're in it. Right. And, and I love that. I love that. That's how, you know, we are swimming in this ocean of energy. Um, but the question then becomes, well, is, am I, re am I, reacting to the ocean or is the ocean reacting to me am i in reaction to this 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 pool or uh, or is it um defining my reality um am i defining my reality out of it forming it uh, manipulating it uh, sculpting it into what i call reality or is it sculpting me I'd love to know where you went with that because I know that you're also philosophical. You know, it's not just the physics. So I, I'm very interested in that concept. Right. Well, that's the thing. It's um, as I wrote these equations, I start to understand what they were saying. They clearly showed that it is not one or the other, but both. Meaning that there's a, there's a feed forward and a feedback right so that the, so so that there is continuous movement of information between me and the field and the field and me so i feed information to the field and the field feeds me back um you know experiences which i interpret that i feed back to the field and so on so that but when i feed it to the field because the field is connecting everything it's yes. holographic fractal field because it's connecting everything, it's being influenced by everything. So it is modified. What I feel, feed the field is modified and fed back to me as an experience that might be not exactly what I expected. And, right. and, and that's how it evolves. That's how the system evolves to a higher and higher level of complexity because it's learning. Um, and it's learning as a result of the sharing of information across all nodes. <laughs>